reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4, page 672. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still live. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from the presence, person's envy of another. This too, too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handful with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, I asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who has no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison, prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thank you so much, Arshad, for reading in your second language. Uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, thank you to Ken for leading us in uh, prayer as we come to look at uh, God's Word together. Please keep that uh, passage open, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Making comparisons is a familiar part of everyday life. Uh, most of us, I'm sure, are all too familiar with those uh, TV ads for comparison websites with their larger-than-life characters, catchy slogans, and memorable jingles. Uh, I'll spare you my rendition of the uh, Go Compare song and my CompareTheMeerkat.com um, uh, uh, impression. 
But there is clearly money to be made from comparing deals. Moneysupermarket.com can afford to pay, can you believe it, Oscar-winning actress Dame Judi Dench as the star of their Money Super 7 campaign with the bold claim, if we can't save Britain money now, no one can. You may be wondering, what on earth has this got to do with Ecclesiastes 4? And if you're not, you probably should be. Well, the thread that holds this chapter together is a whole series of comparisons. In one sense, it's a really strange chapter because there isn't even a single mention of God in any of its 16 verses. Did you notice that? And on first reading, I don't know how you felt, but it kind of sounds really rather depressing. But the key, I think, to unlocking this passage and the wisdom that it contains is to focus on the four better-than statements. Just trace them through with me, please. Uh, So verse 2 And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Uh, Not the cheeriest statement for a Sunday morning. Uh, But don't worry, it gets worse in verse 3. But better than both is the one who has never been born. Not exactly a verse you'd want on a fridge magnet or a kitchen calendar, is it? Not one that you'd want to WhatsApp to a friend who's having a bad day. But there's the first comparison. Uh, The second comes in verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The third is in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And then the final comparison comes in verse 13, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. No direct mention of God, then, in Ecclesiastes 4. Yet as we consider carefully these four comparisons, based on the teacher's various observations of daily life, what we're going to find is that each one points us to the all-wise God. And each offers practical wisdom that can equip us to live a better life that is pleasing to him. First, then, verses 1 to 3. Better to be not yet born than oppressed. Better to be not yet born than oppressed. Here the teacher observes the harsh reality of oppression in a world that rejects God and his justice. Verse 1, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power is on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. It is a terrible thing to be oppressed by people who have power on their side and zero concern for justice, mercy, righteousness, truth. We see it all too often, don't we, in the news, whether it's Ukrainian people oppressed, bombed, and terrorized by Vladimir Putin and his brutal regime, including helpless children forcibly deported to Russia, or Sudanese people in the West Darfur region oppressed by militias, whole villages burned to the ground, little access now to food, clean water, or medicine, or Iranian people, Oppressed, imprisoned, tortured, even executed by their tyrannical leaders. And there are many other countries too, of course. Less in the news today, but where powerful oppression continues. North Korea, Syria, Eritrea, Myanmar, to name but a few. We see and hear these news reports so often that we very easily become desensitized to the tears of the oppressed who have no comforter. Even here in the UK, who knows the exact number of those oppressively bullied into slave labor or forcibly coerced into the sex trade 
How many children or teenagers groomed to participate in county lines drug trafficking, now unable to escape the cunning oppression of their handlers? Or what about spouses or children oppressed in their own homes by means of coercive control, violence, or other forms of abuse? Or those bullied or sexually harassed in the workplace by those who have authority over them? If you've never experienced any form of oppression or supported people who have, it can be hard to relate to the stark reality of verses 2 and 3. But you see, when you're feeling utterly helpless and hopeless, with no one to comfort or support you, no obvious means of escape, it really can feel as if you would be better off dead. That those, verse 2, who have already died are happier than the living. That it really is better, verse 3, for the one who has never been born. Now, wonderfully, the person trusting in God who loves justice, well, they're not powerless in the face of oppression. Jesus recognizes that, doesn't he? When he says to powerful Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. And Jesus, of course, sets the perfect example for every believer facing oppression or unjust treatment or insults at the hands of someone with power over them. Peter writes, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Nor is the Christian, of course, without a comforter when we face oppression or any form of unjust or unfair treatment. No, we have the supreme comforter, also known as the advocate, the one Jesus promises will be with his followers forever, the spirit of truth, the one who has taken up permanent residence in the life of every single Christian believer. Which means that if you're feeling oppressed, mistreated, controlled, intimidated, by an employer, landlord, spouse, teacher, a bully, a government official, or anyone or anything else, you can cry out to your Father in heaven this morning. You can ask him to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit, the one who can strengthen you, encourage you, give you joy and hope, enable you to patiently endure, and ultimately bring you through your trial of faith. Oh, power may appear to be on the side of your oppressor, but my brother, my sister in Christ, the all-powerful God dwells within you by his all-powerful Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is not only given for my personal comfort. Now, we saw recently, didn't we, in 2 Corinthians, that Christians are called to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. And an important aspect of being a Christian is to follow the example of Jesus by being willing to speak up for and speak out on behalf of those who have no comforter, the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, the alienated, the unjustly treated. And the Holy Spirit gives us both the wisdom and the courage to do that, yes, respectfully, but also boldly. Better to be not yet born than oppressed. Then secondly, verses 4 to 6, better to be content than driven or lazy. Better to be content than driven or lazy. Look with me at verse 4. And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now we saw it a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3 together that work is a gift from God. But like all of God's gifts, work and our attitude to it can very easily become distorted and corrupted by sin. 
And here the teacher points out that so much of our work and our striving to achieve is driven by envy. Uh, If your first language is not English this morning, you may not yet uh, know the English idiom, keeping up with the Joneses. It's not used so much today, but it refers to this tendency that we have to want to compare ourselves with others and try and keep up with their accumulation of wealth or, or possessions. So if my neighbor gets a new car, well, I want a new car. If my colleague gets a pay rise, I want a pay rise. Well, the teacher describes this as meaningless chasing after the wind. In other words, something unachievable. Just as wind or breath cannot be caught or held onto, so you cannot keep up with others and their pursuit of material gain. There will always be someone somewhere who has more than you. Unless your name happens to be Bernard Arnault, chairman and CEO of the LVMH luxury goods empire. Mind you, you have to feel for him because his net worth decreased $248 million last month to a mere $222.3 billion. Dear, poor guy. For, you know, sooner or later, even Bernard is going to be overtaken by another billionaire. And even if you or I could achieve that status of being the richest person in the world, it would all be pointless anyway. Because remember, Jesus warns us, that is not where ultimate satisfaction is found. Watch out, he says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So envy can drive us to overwork and to a relentless pursuit of achieving and gaining more and more. But the teacher also observes another equally great but opposite danger when it comes to work. Look with me, please, at verse 5. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Now, in wisdom literature, the picture of folding hands represents laziness. Now, this is a person who completely opts out of the rat race of endless toil and achievement and decides to do, well, nothing really. So Proverbs 24, verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. And ruin themselves at the end of verse 5 could be translated more literally, eat his own flesh. Which is pretty gruesome, isn't it? A bit sort of Hannibal Lecter. The idea being, I think, that a lazy life, and we're talking here about a person who refuses to work, so not someone genuinely unable to work because of ill health or disability or immigration status, but the idea is that a lazy life is so destructive that it leads finally to a person having nothing left at all So the only way to survive is to feed off their own body. Quite a gruesome picture. What advice does the teacher have then concerning our attitude to work? Well, it's there in the better than statement, the comparison. Verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This is really a picture of contentment. Much better, he's saying, to have less and be at peace than to be relentlessly driven, grabbing at everything with two hands. That was pretty much my life before I came to faith, age 24. Always striving for more. More things, more experiences, more pleasures, more holidays, more control. And let me say, it is an exhausting way to live. You may remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or living in want. And again, the key to learning that secret and developing such an approach to life is the Holy Spirit living within me. As Paul goes on to say, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Third comparison, verses 7 to 12. Better to be with others than alone. In verse 8, the teacher observes someone who is completely isolated. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. So no family, uh, no mention of a wife. It's left to our imagination if he's unmarried or if his wife left him. And this person is driven by desire to make money. But he never has enough. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So here's someone working, I don't know, 80, 90 hours a week, maybe more. Always in early, always the last to leave, never takes annual leave, never has a lunch break. But unlike many people today, this person does at least pause, you notice, to reflect and ask an important question. Second half of verse 8, for whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Here's the tragedy, you see, of being consumed by the love of money and driven by an insatiable desire to get rich. You actually deprive yourself of having any fun or enjoying the fruits of your labor because you never want to spend. Or if you do, it's always in a miserly, Scrooge-like, overcautious way. No wonder the teacher describes a life of endless work with zero pleasure to be a miserable business. But now comes the better-than statement. Here's some practical wisdom for those who find themselves all alone in life, perhaps compensating for that by, or trying to by endless work and money-making, maybe trying to store up wealth as a kind of security for the future. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Uh, these verses are sometimes read at weddings, and no doubt that is an obvious application of the two better than one principle. But if we restrict the application to marriage, well, what hope is there then for the unmarried, some of whom may never marry, or those who marry late in life, or those who were married but now sadly divorced or separated, or widows and widowers? Now, I think we need to consider these verses in a much broader and indeed much more biblical way. Because you know that declaration from God back in Genesis 2 verse 18, that it is not good for the man to be alone has universal application. It's true for the person who is not yet married but would love to be and is longing to be. It's true for the person who may never marry. It's true for those who after 40, 50, 60 years of marriage lose their life partner. It's true for those who in one sense have already lost their life partner, the partner they knew, although very, still very much alive, they've lost them to dementia or to severe disability or to terminal illness. My dear brothers and sisters, it is not good for any one of us to be alone in this life. And that is true even for the most extreme introvert who might prefer to be left alone. But no, you see, here is one of the great glories of the gospel. To become a Christian is to become a member of God's household. It's to be adopted into his family. You remember the promise Jesus makes in Mark 10? Incredible promise. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much. Listen to this. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields 
along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. As an unmarried man and someone who, as a teenager, was a bit of a loner, painfully, painfully shy, well into my 20s, let me say this has been one of the great joys of the Christian faith. So many Christian homes are now open to me, places where I know I can be myself, put my feet up. When I was a pastor in London, there was one family that even prepared their guest room when I came for Sunday lunch, knowing that I'd quite like a proper nap after lunch. That's being at home, isn't it? When I was working with True Freedom Trust, traveling around the country, speaking at various churches, I seemed to accumulate mothers wherever I went who would put me up, feed me. Some used to even offer to iron my shirts or or sew a button back on. It was amazing. Now, I've reached a kind of age now where I'm gaining less mothers, but many more sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. That is the glory of the gospel. And look at the benefits that come when we reach out to those who are alone, or indeed those of us who are alone, when we reach out ourselves and share our lives and open our homes. End of verse 9. They have a good return for their labor. See, when we do life together, when we serve in ministry together, we achieve so much more than any one of us could achieve on our own. Uh, The maths here is a bit odd, because one plus one equals more than two. You're looking bit confused. Let me explain. I've seen it with Ikea furniture. (laughs) On my own, I I mean, I am pretty useless at Ikea furniture. We're talking a whole day for a simple bookshelf. And I've got a friend, Rob, good friend, Rob, who is pretty much the same, about a day for a bookshelf. If we pool our resources and get together and help one another out, whole bookshelf, about an hour. How does that work? You do the math. Working together brings a good return. It's better than one plus one. And then look at some of the other benefits of us doing life together or serving together. So verse 10, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Now that can apply, of course, in in the literal, physical sense. Even with those lifeline pendant alarms, it can still be pretty scary when an elderly person falls down alone in their home with no one immediately on hand to help them. But I think in a spiritual sense too, When you or I fall into trouble, or we get caught in a sin, it's so much harder to get back on track if there's no one on hand to talk with or to pray with. It's one reason why we encourage everybody at Above Bar Church to get linked into a a small group or a prayer triplet, because we need to encourage one another in our discipleship, to build each other up, to spur each other on, to do as Jonathan does for David in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. He goes to him in his hour of need, And he helps him find strength in God. That's what we need to be doing, brothers and sisters, as a church family. Looking out for one another. Now we might think that verse 11 applies exclusively to the marriage bed. And of course in our ongoing cost of living and energy crisis, we do need wisdom to not apply this verse too literally. So please let's not... Let's not start asking random brothers and sisters if we could lie down together to keep warm. I'm sure we can all see how that could go horribly wrong. But remember, Ecclesiastes was written at a time when someone out traveling in the wilderness might actually freeze to death alone. So much better to walk them with a companion so that in an emergency body warmth can be shared and life spared. 
Notice there's also strength in numbers, verse 12, if we don't isolate ourselves, but instead reach out for help and support. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Uh, Now, we may be tempted, and and many have been, to see the Trinity here. Uh, But as neat as it sounds, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the three strands. I'm not personally convinced that the teacher had that in mind. Now, I think it's more a case of simple arithmetic. If two are already strong and not easily overpowered, well, how much stronger when you add a third person to the equation? By adding this third strand to an already strong cord, you do end up with a trinity of strength, superglue strength, that is not quickly broken. And of course, if the third cord in a marriage or a friendship or gospel partnership or ministry team is the Lord Jesus, if he is right at the center of all our relationships, they really will not be easily broken or fractured. It was Billy Graham who used to say, the couple that pray together, stay together. And that wise principle, I think, can be applied into every sphere of life. The ministry team, or the group of leaders, or church, who often pray together, thereby ensuring King Jesus is right at the center of everything, will most likely stay together. Better to be not yet born than oppressed. Better to be content than driven or lazy. Better to be with others than alone. Then finally and briefly, verses 13 to 16, better to be teachable than foolish. This little story at the end of chapter 4 is a bit complex, and scholars far wiser than me disagree over how best to interpret it. But I think the key message is clear if, again, we focus on the comparison, the better than statement in verse 13. And it's really a proverb. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Uh, Here's an elderly ruler then, who presumably used to be wise, because I think the implication is before he did know how to heed a warning. Proverbs 19 verse 20 says, listen to advice and accept correction, and in the end you will be wise. And although, of course, we normally associate increasing age with growing wisdom, here's a little warning that this is not automatically the case. Because at the end of his life, This ruler was not wise. And you see, the day that any one of us, no matter what my age or experience, the day that any one of us stop allowing people to speak truth into my life, refuse to accept a gentle rebuke or a correction, well, says the wise teacher, that is the day when I set foot on and start along the path that leads to folly. Rather be a poor but wise youth, says the teacher, one who, verse 14, may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. So better to be a young person born in obscurity and with a questionable background who has a teachable spirit than an old but foolish leader. See, who would people rather follow? Verse 15, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. I think this should be a great encouragement to those of you here who are still young, and I'll let you self-identify on that one. But those of you who are young but have been entrusted with leadership responsibility or ministry responsibility, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, writes Paul to Timothy, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, if we have our New Testament reading glasses on this morning, we can't help but see the all-wise, eternal king coming into focus in these final verses. In many ways, I think this little story is his story. Jesus was born in poverty and obscurity within his kingdom, wasn't he? Nazareth, 
Can anything good come from there? Yet you remember how Luke writes of him as a boy that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And unlike the foolish king, Jesus was always attentive to his father's words, storing them up in his heart, so that when the devil tempts him in the wilderness to take the easy path to kingdom glory, he resists. He steers well clear of that foolish path by quoting scripture. And that temptation prepares him for the even greater temptation when around age 33, in his final days in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he contemplates the cross, in agony, he longs for the cup of suffering to be taken from him, but wisely declares to his father, yet not my will, but yours be done. And you know, because Jesus remained wise and obedient right to the end, God exalted him to the very highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. His kingdom is the only one that will ensure forever. And if you want to be a wise person, whether you consider yourself young or old or somewhere in between, Put your trust in him, in his death on the cross and his resurrection to eternal life. And you know, no matter how tough life might become for you, if you never stop following him, he will take you to eternity. He will teach you and his Holy Spirit will empower you to live this better life that is wise and pleasing to your creator. Let's pray. Father, we cannot live this better life on our own. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus, our all-wise King. Thank you that he has given us that assurance that if we trust in him, if we put our hope in him for forgiveness of sins, he will bring us through to eternal life. Father, thank you that in those last days, he did not turn away from you. He did not turn to folly. But he said, yet yeah, not my will, but yours be done. May we follow that pattern. May we trust in him. And may you, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit that we may follow him all the days of our lives. We ask in his precious and glorious name. Amen.